You know the story about the, uh, the ant and the grasshopper? This is grasshopper. Hot summer's fucking day. He sees this fucking ant pulling this big fucking piece of corn. And he says, hey ant, what are you doing with that corn? He says, winter's coming. You wanna fucking help us, grasshopper? You wanna help us? Fucking half empty, you fucking idiot! Fucking he says, sorry, fucking no, it's a hot sorry. summer's day, we got heaps of food, and so the ant. He doesn't care, he just keeps going. What the fuck is this We've had a bit of trouble. We're gonna set up a lab here. No, 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 take your shit. Winter comes in, all the food goes. And all the ants are all right, because they've got all their fucking stored up. All their fucking corn. But the grasshopper, he's fucking outside in the cold and he didn't fucking help. That job I was talking about, I'm putting it together. Everything you need's in here. You look worried, mate. We're good, mate. We're fucking <clears throat> good. He did his own fucking thing, and he comes to the ants, and he says, I'm starving, I'm cold. Got fucking nothing. What fucking ants do? Ants, eh? You didn't fucking help us, mate. You didn't fucking help us at all. So you can starve, you can freeze, you can fuck off and die. Hey, boy! That's the trailer for We're Not Here to Fuck Spiders. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by We're Not Here to Fuck Spiders director Josh Reed to discuss his tense, claustrophobic drama. Reed describes spiders as found footage noir. The film is set in a drug dealer's house and is constructed from found surveillance footage. There's not much we can tell you about the story without giving anything away, but it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. The film builds up to one hell of a final act as different characters who frequent the house begin to reveal themselves. Here, Josh discusses his film with great depth, including why he decided on the title, the risks of making such a hardcore film in Australia, and why he may never make another film again. Josh is also the son of Long Weekend and Phantasm Comes Again director Colin Eggleston, which he talks about. We're Not Here to Fuck Spiders will screen on July 9 at the Revelation Perth International Film Festival. More screenings will be announced soon, so keep an eye on cinemaaustralia.com.au for details. Anyway, enjoy. Josh Reed, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Congratulations on We're Not Here to Fuck Spiders. Uh, As I said on social media recently, this film hit me like a sledgehammer. I first heard about it uh, in September last year when it screened at uh, a Night of Horror Film Festival, and I didn't quite know what to make of it then. But now that I've seen it, I can honestly say that this is right up there as one of my favourite Australian films from the last few years. Uh, It's sure to polarise audiences, which is an achievement in itself. So uh, congratulations again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, polarising audiences is something I do like to do. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get to attend that uh, A Night of Horror screening? Yeah, I did. I did. That was the first time um, I'd seen it with an audience of any sort, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few screenings with friends while I was sort of cutting it to try and get feedback and get, get an idea of how it's coming together because it's actually a, 
a very hard film to gauge from the outset and even what form it was finally going to take uh, because of the style of shooting. So it was really interesting to see it with an audience. And it went down really well. I was really pleased. Well, what was it like? Explain it to us about sitting in, in, in the cinema watching it with the audience. Did, did, you know, did the, not that there's many laughs in it, but did all of the right reactions land at the right time? They did, yeah, yeah. The 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 laughs, um, yeah, the laughs came. Um, we did have, uh, I think, we had one walkout. Really. Um, but um, but she did come back afterwards and uh, and explain she was just finding it a little bit too intense and had to leave. Um, but wasn't and wanted to make sure I didn't feel like she was, was offended by the whole thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it went down really well. I was really, really happy with it. That's completely understandable from an audience point of view, you know, to get to have that kind of reaction, especially if you've, you know, ha, you know, lived this kind of life or you know had an issue with drugs. Um, but we can get into that a bit later. For now, I want to, yep. I want to start by um, talking about you as a filmmaker. Where did your filmmaking journey begin, and and what got you into this business? Oh well, my dad's a filmmaker or was a filmmaker. Um, Colin Eggleston, he made a film, his his most famous film was Long Weekend um, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, So, and I I was about 14, I was up in Sydney, I grew up in Melbourne, up in Sydney staying with dad. He was shooting a a cop show called Bellamy um, and we were just hanging around set and I just thought, oh yeah, okay, this is what I want to do. And so um, from there, it, it, it went from there. I started off editing. Um, so I was an editor, uh, for, for quite a while in the nineties and went into animating, um, and, uh, uh, yeah, animation was a sort of a, a weird dog leg that happened because I was editing, a, the first season of recovery on the ABC, yeah. um, and, uh, Paul, the EP of that, um, had seen some, some film work that we'd done that my brother and I and friend Nige had done. Um, and asked us to make some breakers for recovery, which we started off doing some live action ones. They just happened to be really expensive to do um, for the pittance of uh, cash outlay that we were given. Um, so we started yeah. doing claymation uh, and then MTV started requesting stuff from us and, and, and Channel V and that sort of became a four year diversion um, or even more actually. Uh, and then sort of uh, uh, Fly TV, which was Australia's first digital TV channel, I was um, through through Bruce Kane, who was um, also a major creative force behind recovery. He was setting up Fly TV, got me on board as creative director of that, which I did for two and a half years. Um, and then from there, it was just sort of a process of working to... Um, working to sort of earn a living while I was trying to get up features. Um, but... Yeah, so, so that's a lot of TV. That, that's a lot of TV in that time. Were you always, you know, hoping to get back or get into feature film? For sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, feature film was yep. sort of um, the my original intent, but, um, but you know, you, you do need to earn money in TV is where most of that is, or, you know, where most <laughs> of the work actually is, realistically. Um, so, yeah, TV... TV sort of has been the bulk of my my working life. Um, uh, I, I didn't know that uh, that Colin was your father. That that's very interesting. Uh, well, what was it like to grow up in in that kind of environment? I mean, he was a huge part of that that big era of Australian film. Yeah. Well, I mean, I um, I suppose Dad grew up. Dad was sort of mostly in Sydney. I mean, he he was in Melbourne originally and moved up to Sydney in the late seventies. 
when I was a kid. Um, so I, I suppose I wasn't necessarily immersed in um, the industry in that way, uh, but sort of, in, but in film. Dad loved film, took us to films all the time. He used to take us to the drive-in to see Hammer Horror movies when we were kids and things. So, so he did sort of thoroughly immerse us in um, high-quality horror cinema, which was which was a great childhood to have. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, so the last feature film that you made was in 2010, uh, which was uh, the horror film Primal. Was making that film a good experience for you? Uh, yeah, you couldn't have asked for a better crew. It was, uh, yeah, it was low budget. Mm. Again, not quite as low budget as Spiders, but it was, it was, you know, it's always a struggle to make something on no money and you're always trying to get more coverage than you have time for. And so, yes. you know, you, you, you're fighting the clock the whole way. Uh, but that was an amazing, yeah, a, a, an amazing first sort of film to make just because everybody, just, everyone just threw everything at it. Um, so, yeah, it was a great experience. So following that, uh, you made a bunch of stuff with the chasers, uh, like the hamster wheel and, and the checkout. How did you get involved in that? Well, I'd already been working with them. So on the second season of um, The War on Everything, I came on board as an animator. Um, and I'd known the guys sort of vaguely for, for some years. Um, and Jules just rang me up one day because um, Doug Bain, who was doing the animating the year before, was leaving to do some of his own stuff. Um, and then from there, I like I continued to do that stuff with them for a while and then started directing after, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, after Primal. Uh, mm. Started doing directing for them and still a bit of animating as well. Uh, but that was a great, like the, just a great team to work with lovely people very generous um to me so yeah it was it was a really that that was a really good sort of 10 years of work really in there yeah. uh so here we are now with uh, this terrific film which i couldn't praise anymore uh, tell our listeners what it's about in in your own words well it's a so it's a found footage uh, i'll have to be a bit careful not to drop any spoilers in here it's quite yes. a, it, it's basically the the setup is um somebody has broken into a meth dealer's house and rigged up hidden cameras inside. Um, and you don't know why. Um, he also has a brew, uh, he's sort of set up a little squat in an abandoned house over the road. Um, the whole thing is through the cameras he sets up and a camera he has in the house over the road and then a body camera that he rigs up on it, a button camera he rigs up on his jacket later in the film mm. um, in order to capture some stuff that happens outside the house. So he's a character within the house as well. He's, he's, um, so he's in and out of the house as well as having this sort of, um, I suppose, uh, undercover filming uh, thing going on. And you don't really, you don't know why, but gradually uh, hints come out. And then the, the final resolve, uh, it's really only in the last few minutes of the film that the whole thing comes together, unless you pick up before, it's like some people might pick up what's going on before that. There are yes. there. Um, I didn't pick it up, so good on you there. <laughs> um, I think this might be the first movie in Australian film history with the word "fuck" in it. Uh, it it's a great title. Tell us about deciding to to name it. Uh, to name it, we're not here to fuck spiders. I kind of, I just, well, I mean, the, the the phrase the phrase has a ring to it anyway. But I kind of yeah. felt like that phrase just had a, 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 it had a bit of a um, sort of 50s pulp, pulp crime vibe to it, which, uh, which is sort of a, a favourite era of literature for me. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I just and and I I like the the idea. Like you know, it means come on, we're here to get down to business. And yes. then it's just these guys who are that just have this sort of chaotic rambling existence. But but also um, clearly, like the main guy Anton clearly thinks of himself as a dynamic businessman. So it's sort of it, it, like it just kind of felt like it worked. Did you do much uh, research into the phrase itself and and where it originated? No, I still don't really know where it originated. I mean, I have done since then. I have actually done a little bit. Um, the Macquarie Dictionary actually on their blog uh, a couple of years ago wrote a thing about uh, the phrase and then mentioned the film. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? In their little in their blog, which was you know, there's no greater legitimacy than being mentioned in the Macquarie Dictionary. Wow! Uh, wow. But but I still don't know really where it came from. I read last night that it might have uh, it might have come from uh, Ian Fleming's first uh, James Bond novel, uh, in which uh, James Bond says, uh, "We're not here to fuck flies." Right. That was something that I read last night. But yeah, there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot of theories about where it actually came from. Apparently, in other countries as well, they say uh, we're not here to put socks on caterpillars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, both, both both are difficult things to do. So it's best yeah. to not be here to do them. Did did you uh, did you ever consider any other titles for the film? I mean, did did you ever think that it might be too risky to to have the word fuck in the title? Well, yeah, I mean, I did. Uh, I was thinking of other titles, obviously, at the beginning, um, and then, but pretty much as soon as this one dropped in um, into place, of nothing. There were no other contenders after that. Mm. Um, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't really feel like. I mean, you're making a film for sort of under thirty grand. Um, you've got to you've got to do everything you can to get noticed, and putting fuck in the title gets you noticed, really. <laughs> so, so it hasn't. You don't think it's had any negative impacts on the film being screened at uh, certain festivals or, or finding a distributor or anything like that? You haven't come up against that. Well, we haven't we haven't actually spoken to distributors yet, so that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Look, there, there was a, a great team series a few years ago, um, End of the Fucking World, and that didn't yes. seem to do any damage to that. So I don't. I actually don't think it will be a problem. Yeah. Um, there may be there may be some no's, but I think the the yeses will outweigh it. Probably. Yeah, the quality of the film speaks for itself, regardless of the title. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or cinemaaustralia.com.au. People will know from the trailer, and as you've mentioned, the film is a found footage film. Tell us about deciding to shoot in that style. Well, I think I, I, I liked, so that style actually came before this concept. I, I wanted to do something to do with um, a surveillance style found footage. So, um, uh, and, and I, because I liked the idea, like I, I liked, I, there's something, there is something I think really interesting about found footage as a concept, the fact, the fact that the, the the filming of the events is part of the narrative of the events. There's something a, a sort of circularity to that that I like, um, but it's mostly obviously a, a documentary crew or um, someone who just likes filming stuff, or and then and things go pear shaped around them. I wanted something where the that it, it wasn't just part of the narrative, but it was actually the core narrative device. So I was looking for an idea where. Um, the filming of the events had no cinematic aspirations. Um, the cameras were there for a, a reason beyond um, actually making a film of any sort. Yes. Uh, and and also, I think the the 
um, the surveillance thing just has a, an added level of voyeurism to it that yeah. that I think the handheld, the usual handheld style of, of found footage doesn't really have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I wanted to explore the unease that you can get from from that sort of thing, particularly in, in this film, which is ultimately about complicity and abuse, and mm-hmm. and make and it adds a layer of complicity for the audience to be sitting there with these sort of stark locked off cameras with the 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 goings on that they then have to watch um and i thought that was you know an interesting thing to be able to explore did it mean that you could uh, cut back on crew like a cinematographer etc i know i had a cinematographer um look it it did it certainly the main thing it meant was that we could shoot it in a week which is what we did so um, because we got the house, we rigged it up with the cameras. They are all cabled up to um, a, uh, a, a TriCaster, which is a device that can record multiple cameras at once, a sort of a, a, a low-level OB um, yeah. device, uh, which we borrowed, again, from the Chaser guys. Um, mm. And we had that rigged up in one of the rooms upstairs in the house, and all, all the cameras cabled to that. And then we could just run the cables... Um, and sorry, that's my dog. No, it's okay. um, yeah, we, we could run all the cameras at once and, uh, and record whole scenes of the past, which is what we did. Um, yeah. I, and the way we did it because it's, it's all improvised, uh, but also the actors didn't know what the story was. So they didn't know mm. where the film was going. All they knew was everything that they needed, everything about their own character and how mm. their characters interrelated with each other. Um, and in rehearsals, we just ran scenes with them all um, sort of interacting with each other uh, so they could get a feel for it and get a feel for the power dyna- dynamics within the group. Um, and then before, when we when we shot it, we shot it in sequence, did split day night, so shooting sort of midday to midnight. Right. Uh, five nights in a row. Um, and uh, I'd brief the actors beforehand, uh, run, the, run the scene. Sometimes it would run for, the scene might run for five minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. Um, and then we'd just do it, we'd do it as many times as we needed to, to get, to get to where we needed to be. And I brief them for the next one. Um, and which I think was actually like, there were advantages and disadvantages to that. At the end of the day, I think the, the disadvantage was it's actually incredibly difficult to get critical story points, uh, embedded in a, in, in a sequence when the actors don't actually know yes. where the story's going. Um, so that did that. That was a major difficulty. But the the beauty of it is it allows actors to just concentrate on character. So they yes. they, they don't have to be storytellers. They don't have to try to um, they don't have to try to sell the audience on anything other than the way they interrelate with each other. Um, and I think that sort of does come across in the film. And it gives it a, a. I kind of felt like it was important that it felt like in the initial stages of the film, it kind of felt like maybe nothing's going to actually happen in this film. It's just going to be yes. people. It's just cameras filming people having their crazy lives. Uh, one camera in particular is quite low to the ground and, and it's very close to the action in that lounge room. Yep. Uh, there's one scene where uh, one of the characters almost trips over and hits the camera. Did, did this happen from time to time? Was Oh, yeah, no, definitely. There were, <laughs> there, there were um, times when, um, yeah, times when people bumped into cameras and um, times when uh, somebody would be standing in front of the camera during a whole scene and yeah. you can't see anything that's going on, uh, which, I, which, which sort of, you, you know, you want to be able to embrace that a little bit, but at the same time, um, you can't 
entirely because you literally just you you miss everything and it and it, be, it becomes a little bit intolerable to watch. So there is a there's sort of a balance there between wanting to get that that random realism and actually delivering a film that yeah is it actually something that you can watch and enjoy um i'm a huge fan of uh, stephanie king uh, if anyone out there hasn't seen observance or uh, or chocolate oyster yet you really should um she gives a very bold performance here along with the rest of the cast tell us about uh, casting stephanie and everyone else well steph was one of the first people to come on um and uh, SJ, who is one of the producers, Sarah Jane, um, put me on to Steph. Uh, they knew each other, and Steph was at the time in LA. Um, and so we we just ha- had some Skype calls and chatted it through. Uh, and then she was coming back to Australia. So when she got as soon as she got back, we caught up and started talking about it in more depth. And she was just completely on board with the whole idea. She loved the the, the idea and the the style and the way it was the way it was going to work. Um, and so she was quite excited about it and was, and I think in, you know, that, that sort of support made it easy to get other actors on because once you've got somebody, um, who's, who's sort of respected and committed to it, um, makes it easier. Cause I, I you know, I didn't really, apart from Lindsay. So I knew Lindsay, um, from primal, he was in primal. Yes. Um, but Lindsay actually came on quite late to this because, um, he was, we had an actor drop out about 10 days before we were due to shoot who was, who was oh. going to be doing the, the, the lead. And because Lynn's in, like, he's a great actor and, and I was blown away by him in Primal and by just, just his audition for Primal, the moment I saw it, I said, oh, yeah, that's the guy. He just sent in a self-tape. And I thought, yeah, he's, he's great. But he was a very different character in Primal. So I hadn't actually initially considered him for this. But then when, when we got to this point where um we were we needed somebody i just thought well look he's so good that i'm sure he can um I, i'm sure he can transform himself so i rang him up uh and he happened to be in town he was about to head back to la uh and uh, he had also since primal spent you know, completely transformed himself anyway so he was he had an entirely different look than he did from from chad in primal uh, and he so he postponed his trip back to LA by a week so that he could stay and shoot it. Um, and and he threw himself into it. He and Steph both moved into the house for the for the week that we were shooting. So they were sort ah. of living in there. And this was like it was a flea pit. The, <laughs> yeah, um, the holes in the floors and the bits of scaffolding trying to prop up the collapsing roof and stuff. So it was <laughs> yeah, not a pleasant place to live. But yeah. they, yeah, they threw everyone really threw themselves into it. It was great. Yeah, you can really tell it. It certainly comes through on screen that everyone threw themselves into it. Uh, Steph gets bashed around quite a bit. Uh, what What did you do to ensure everyone, you know, was able to switch off from these characters once filming had stopped for the day? Did Did you do anything, you know, entertaining or to take your minds off it? Well, we didn't literally didn't have time. Like the, it was, and and in many ways, I think they like part of the reason that both Steph and Lynn's moved into the house and was that I, I kind of feel like they didn't want to switch it off. Um, I mean, it does require like when you're, when you're doing this sort of stuff that, that, that does have this level of, I suppose, um, immersive intensity to it. You do have to be very mindful of, um, People actually feeling safe, even yes. even though they're they within a within an actual scene, um, they're they're putting themselves in very unsafe places. You need they need 
you need to know they need to know that they've supported all the way through and that you're you're ready to um call anything if it's going too far um yeah so there's a, a lot of uh, i provided as much support as i could um but uh, at the end of the day they you know I think they both wanted to push the envelope a bit on this. Yeah, they're professionals. Um, I have to ask you about uh, this kid, Cook. Uh, how do you explain a character to someone like that? Well, so Mirabee, um, Mirabee was at um, Newtown School of Performing Arts with uh, a friend's daughter. Um, and I and so I'd spoken to my friend Suze um, to, just to see if she knew anybody who she thought would be good for it because I didn't really know any child actors and um, and she said oh yeah Mirabee would be great yeah. um, and so I caught up uh, with Angeline his mum and Mirabee uh, and chatted through it all um, just explained you know what the, the, everything about the sort of stuff that would be going on um, mm. and things and they again. Um, like he's he was I think fifteen at the time, right. um, but a you know a really a really sort of smart cluey kid who was yeah. um, and and really sort of a, a dedicated actor and he was trained so he was at, yes. uh, at performing arts school so he he did he had a grounding that made it that I, I guess gave him a good good basis to work from but he was also just so committed to it um and it's a it's a you know he never speaks throughout the whole film he's just no. he's sort of um shunted into this house and left there to cook meth um mm. and everybody in the house sort of doesn't know what to do with him and uh, you know that mostly just sort of ignore him and then the the bikies come back and take away yeah. and, and it's a great little performance for someone who doesn't have any lines in the film <laughs> it, yeah it really, it really stands out yeah totally yeah he's great um yeah. So it's it's a very heavy film, film, and I have no doubt uh, it, it will be confronting for a lot of viewers. Uh, why did you want to explore these particular themes in your film? Well, it, yeah, it's an interesting question because it's sort of it, once I came up with the idea, um, which you know the 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 core concept, which I obviously can't reveal because it's the yeah. it's the um, reveal at the end of the film, and it'll be yeah. a spoiler. Um, yeah. But once I came up with that, so it wasn't necessarily initially going to be quite this, um, I suppose, dark and, and yeah. sort of abusive. Yeah. Um, but once that idea had settled in of, of what the, the, the core concept was, it would have been evasive for it not to be. Like I kind of felt like it needed to be... Um, true to what that experience would have been like for yes. uh, for f's um, yeah. and uh, and and sort of soft pedaling on any of it would have actually been um dishonest i think yes yeah so. uh, without getting too personal with this next question uh, if i can reveal a bit of myself here i've been in these houses before and i've i've known people who who have lived like this, and, and I've seen some horrible things happen to people in these environments. Uh, you must have drawn on some personal experiences for this film to, to make it so real. Well, yeah, I mean, totally. I, we've all been in these houses before. Yeah. There, it's like, because that, that's just the way your youth tends to work. You, you yeah. just find yourself in, in um, very random, unusual situations, and sometimes you're suddenly going, ah. Oh. Oh no! I probably shouldn't yeah. have done that, but here I yeah. am. 
Um, so there, there, there's all there is all of that. But I think at the end of the day, like uh, filmic authenticity to me isn't the same thing necessarily as as a as strict realism. Like yes. I think authenticity is about creating a filmic world that feel that that is holistic and where um, you have a sense of what the rules of the world are and how it functions and what the power hierarchies within that world are. Um, and, and once you start working on that with the actors and things, it does, it, it generates its own authenticity. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, obviously everybody, I'd say everyone who who's, was involved in it had at some time found themselves in a house like this. And so there was, and, and everybody's bringing aspects of that to it. But the beauty of, I suppose what I'm saying is the beauty of um, doing it a, a non-scripted, not you know, a non-scripted version like this is that the everybody brings their own personal experience to it, and that just builds up a a, a much more holistic uh, environment that the film exists within. Yeah, no, just talking to you, I want to watch this film again. I think I'm going to watch it after after we finish chatting here. <laughs> um, do, do Australian filmmakers play it too safe? Is there an issue in this country with making hard-hitting, gritty films like this, well, in your there, opinion? There, there's just not the opportunity to. I think, you know, Screen Australia um, aren't going to fund things like this um, mm. and, and didn't. Like, we – so our plan was that we would make it um, – we, we'd – shoot it, we'd cut a first cut, uh, we'd prove that we had a film and then we'd get some completion funding from Screen Australia because it is actually the final leg of making the film that is the hardest to get yes. um, over the line for no money. Um, and uh, But they said no. They, they said this isn't something we feel we can support. Uh, and I think that in itself, the, the fact of that and the understanding for filmmakers in Australia, that that is the case means that everybody is self-censoring before they even sort of write a script because they're because they're, what's the point of writing something that you're not going to get up? Um, yes, you know you're wasting your time um, and your creative energies, and you're just setting yourself up for massive disappointment. Having done it a number of times, I yeah. So, um, so from personal experience. So do you think so, that experience uh, with Screen Australia there and, and them not funding that final leg of the film, has, has that changed the way you will approach your next film? You know, will, will you play it safer? No. Well, I, look, no, the old, for me it's, um, to be honest, I think it's probably unlikely I'll make another film. Um, I can't see myself getting up something that I would actually want to make um, in Australia and uh, and the uh, like this this uh, as much as I'm you know proud of this film and pleased uh, pleased that I did it and everything it was an excruciating experience in the yeah. long run because it was so much work and it took me after we shot it in um, uh, early 2017 so yeah. it's sort of uh, it then took me another three and a half years after that to finish the film because everything was. It, it was just pulling teeth all the way. Um, and I don't have, a, I, I don't reckon, I reckon you've only really got one of those in you um, yes. to make it that way. Like after that, you, you just need the money to be able to do it um, without killing yourself for it. Mm. Uh, and I just, yeah, I can't see, I honestly can't see myself getting the money for something that I would actually want to put the time into to make. 
Yeah, it's it's a very very common story that I hear with a lot of filmmakers. Uh, yeah, it's 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 yeah. an absolute shame. Uh, I love looking at posters used as set decoration in movies, and I noticed that you've got a primal poster on the lounge room wall. Uh, but I also <laughs> yeah. noticed the poster from Phantasm Comes Again. Uh, was right. there a reason you wanted to include that poster, that particular uh, well, that's poster? Film my dad made. Ah, so, yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's why that's there. Um, oh. Uh, yeah, most most of the most of the posters were just random things that that um, Smash, who the production designer had sort of access to, but yeah. the primal one um, and yeah, Phantasm comes again with the two that uh, had had yeah, two little Easter eggs. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's awesome. Um, the upcoming Revelation Film Festival screening uh, will be the second time the film is screened publicly. What what's next for the film locally in Australia? Well, Where will people be able actually, to see it? When when Revelation, oh, it, it'll be the second time it's screened locally. It'll be yes. the fourth time it's screened uh, right. because we, it, it screened at uh, Nougat Underground Film Festival in in Virginia in April um, right. last April, where it won Best Film, and it's screening in um, in Brazil, obviously in two weeks' time. So it'll be yeah. the fourth the fourth public screening, but the, the yeah the second in Australia. Um, so so what's happening after that? We're, and, well, after that, like, you know, I would like to be able to organise some screenings around Australia. Yeah. And I do get contacted by people um, semi-regularly on Facebook just saying, oh, uh, when's this going to screen, you know, in Queensland or when's this, like, they're screening in Melbourne and stuff. People, you know, there is a, a degree of curiosity out there about it. So I would like to be able to organise that sort of stuff. We'll look for, once we've done a bit of a festival run, um, we'll try and get uh, some distribution of some sort. Like, it obviously won't get us an actual cinema run, but we might be able to get yes. some bespoke screenings around. Um, yeah. And then most likely a streamer of some sort, I expect. Well, I think the uh, the last Australian film I saw that made me want to scream about it from the rooftops was uh, Judy and Punch. And I'll certainly be telling everyone to seek this one out. Uh, so congratulations on the film and uh, thanks for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.